Hi, my name is Jana Metzger. Welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. That in the gospel, we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies the implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So we are in week two of our Christmas sermon series. Uh, This last week, we looked at how Jesus Christ embraced a crown of thorns, where most worldly leaders embrace a king's crown or a royal crown. Jesus flipped the script, and he gave up his royal crown to embrace a crown of thorns. And and that wasn't, we've got to be careful here, because in this sermon series, we're going to look at events in which Jesus did these things. But we've got to be careful, because Jesus didn't just embrace a crown of thorns upon his death. Now, that was when we saw the crown of thorns put on his head, but the very act, and at Christmas time, we celebrate the act of Jesus coming down to this earth. The very act of Jesus coming to this earth was an act of him embracing that crown of thorns. When Jesus was born, he knew what he was getting into coming into this. The infant Jesus probably didn't know, but, but Jesus came and knew what he was getting into. He knew what the ultimate end was going to be. And so in agreeing to come to the earth in the first place, Jesus is embracing this crown of thorns. And then his entire life is a series of decisions that embrace this crown of thorns mentality, that embrace suffering for our sakes. And not very many earthly kings do that, do they? suffer so that their servants, so that those beneath them can be lifted up. But that's exactly what Jesus did. And we learn that by studying Genesis 15. And Genesis 15, when God made that covenant with Abraham, shows us that all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, and even before the Bible was, was written, before the events of the Bible, from the beginning of time, Jesus Christ was God's plan A. The gospel was God's plan A. And so all of that, the the crown of thorns, everything that the gospel entails was God's plan to redeem us. So today we turn and we look at how Jesus embraced a servant's towel as opposed to a king's scepter. Worldly kings come with a king's scepter, right? They rule. And their rule is final, and with that scepter they make their decrees, and everyone must follow them and serve them and live for them. But Jesus came and embraced the life of a servant, and he did so by grabbing that servant's towel. Now there's a man named Robert K. Greenleaf. I don't know if any of you are familiar with him, but he is the one who stakes the claim of inventing, well I guess... He wouldn't tell you he invented it, but he would tell you that he coined the term servant leadership. And he did so back in the 1970s. He published an essay called The Servant as Leader. And in that, he coined this term servant leadership. Now, all of us know, and 
Greenleaf will acknowledge this, that he didn't come up with the principle of servant leadership, but all of us know that God has been doing servant leadership from the very beginning, right? And completely changes how we do this. Now, I am going to throw, I've been ragging on, you know, leadership culture and all that stuff. I'm going to throw Greenleaf a bone here and all of the servant leaders out there. Of all of the leadership styles, servant leadership is the one that is closest to biblical leadership. Biblical leadership says those who are on top serve first. All throughout the Bible, and especially when Jesus comes in the gospel, as we'll study today, teaches those who are on top are the first in line to serve. Right? That's what the Bible teaches. So servant leadership gets very close and very, very close. And, uh, you know, I've, I've told some of you all, you know, my, how, you know, I've, I've had been in circles where I try to get shoved in these leadership boxes and people are trying to tell me what kind of leader I am and all that. Servant leadership's always the one that I get thrown. Oh, yeah, Jeremy, you're a servant leader. But there's a difference. There's a subtle difference, and it all has to do with motivation. Because servant leadership, while, while it gets close to the Bible, one thing that the world can never mirror, and, and this is sneaky, but one thing that the world will never be able to mirror is motivation. Why do you do what you do? Because we can do a lot of things that line up with principles in the Bible, but the Bible, this is where God gets a little sneaky on us. God is never concerned, as concerned with the outcome of your actions as he is the motivation behind those actions. And that's really sneaky, isn't it? It's sneaky for you, Christian, mm -mm -mm, because it means you cannot judge someone else without knowing the motive of their heart. Somebody could be a saint like Mother Teresa. Yes, my Mother Teresa, but also the Mother Teresa. You know, the great Mother Teresa that everybody knows, right? But, but y'all, Mother Teresa could have been doing all of that for the wrong reasons, right? She could have been doing all of that serving so that she could sign a big book deal. That's bad motivation. And the gospel does not reward that motivation. But the same goes with servant leadership. And we have to be careful, because all through Greenleaf's essay, now I'll be honest with y'all, I have not read his essay. I have browsed some of it as I've gone through some of these different leadership things. I've done the cliff notes, you know, all that stuff. But, but all through this essay, the motivations for servant leadership are always worldly-based. Why do you serve? And, and it's, again, it's sneaky, because why, do you, why are you a, a leader who's a servant first? Well, it's for the good of the organization, so that the organization can excel. That's not gospel motivation. Here's another sneaky one. Why are you a servant leader? Because it's good for the people. It builds the people up and makes them the best they can be. Guys, here's the thing. That's a good reason, right? That's a good reason. Jesus isn't going to sit here and tell you that that's a bad reason. That's a good reason, but it's not a gospel reason. It's not a gospel motivation. Yes, the gospel puts others first. But as we will see today, there is something even deeper. The problem is when we, and we've talked about this a lot, when we have the wrong anchors, when we face the wrong storms, when we have the wrong motivations, 
they collapse on us very quickly. Because if you are a servant leader for the good of the organization, let's say I am a servant leader because it's good for the Gospel House Church, right? When the Gospel House Church collapses, what happens to me? I collapse with it, right? If I am a servant leader because it's good for my family, if my family collapses, what happens to my leadership? It collapses with it, right? Because you are putting your anchor in worldly things. So what do we anchor to so that we don't embrace worldly things? So we're going to have three main points today to show us these motivations. Our first point is going to be what is man's motivation? What motivates man? What motivates manly kings? And not like manly kings, but like human kings. What motivates them? And then we're going to look at what motivates God. What motivated God to send Jesus Christ to this earth? What motivates God's king? And then finally, we're going to look at, based on those two things, what should motivate us in our serving when we serve others? Sound good? Good, everybody's awake. Wow, this is great. All right, so first we start with man's motivation. Man's kings, worldly kings, leaders, whatever you want to call them, and they are all motivated by the same thing, and they are the three Ps. You ready for these? Can you guess them? Power, position, you're close, Tim got them out of order, and prestige, right? <coughs> Excuse me. Those are the three Ps. Those are the three things that everyone is obsessed with. And in leadership, it is all about advancement, right? It has always been all about advancement. Yes, it looks a lot different now than it used to. But when you think about it, ancient kings, what were they all obsessed with, right? When you became a king over a country or whatever, you didn't just, oh, this is great, guys. I love being a king. I'm just super content just being here over my little kingdom. And that's not what they did, right? You became a king and you immediately sought, how do I expand my kingdom? Right? Oh, those, I mean, they were so brutal back then, oh, so backwards. <laughs> because now, what is everybody obsessed with? Well, I'm a leader, I'm a CEO of this organization. How do, we, how do I grow my portfolio? How do I expand our business? How do I, what, do I, what do we branch into? It's no different. Stop thinking that you are so much more enlightened and advanced than everybody else. You don't chop people's heads off with swords. Good for you. You just fire them on Christmas Eve. Much better, right? But that's what it's all about. It's all about advancement. It's all about moving forward. And so we get all of these leadership styles, right, that come up to teach us how do we advance, how do we make the most? How do we maximize our profits? All of these things. And I, I want to be, I'm going to put this out here. I'm not tearing any of that down when it comes to the corporate world. All right? So if you're a CEO, if you're, you own your own business, like whatever it is, it's not bad to put these business principles in place. What I am telling you to be careful of is letting that bleed into your walk with Jesus. Because the problem that we have today 
is that as these CEOs and corporations have become more successful in the world's way of doing things, we have started applying those to how to run a church, which again, isn't necessarily always wrong, but we have also let it affect how we walk with Jesus. We've let it impact our relationship with Jesus. And, and really what's, what's most scary about all of this is that when you look at what does the church run to when it's in trouble, the good church always runs to Jesus when it's in trouble, right? The good Christian always runs to Jesus when it's in trouble. But we've started running to best business practices, and we've started running to leadership summits, and we've started running to all of these different things that have all of a sudden, in a very sneaky way, and we, when we tell ourselves, oh, well, you know, this, it's all for Jesus, it's all for God, but are we really letting God do his church? Are we listening to him first? Or are we listening to the voices of the world telling us how we should advertise and how we should get people to fill our seats and how we should do all of these things? I also want to plug this, having said all of that. It's really interesting to me because throughout the history of mankind, God has a way of blessing the socks off of people who choose to do life God's way instead of the secular way. So even if you do own a business, can I challenge you, best business practices aren't wrong. It's okay to do that. But why don't you still make God your first turn? When you're in trouble and you don't know what to do, why don't you make him your phone a friend, right? Instead of turning to all of these other things to save your business. Because I have this crazy theory, maybe some of you have heard it before, but I personally believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough for all of life, for everything that we do. When it comes to business, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to church, when it comes to... That's why we started this church, because I had gotten to a point where I felt like we turned to everything else but the gospel. And then when we really are just flummoxed, then we turn to the gospel. Then it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And I thought, what if we started a church where our first turn was not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord? What if we let that be everything? And so that's what we're trying to do here, to see if the gospel is enough, to see if that's enough for all of life. And I would challenge you to do that in your business as well. Do that in your career as well. Put God to the test. See if the gospel is enough. And I think you will be surprised at your answer. I got lost now. That was, that was a side note there. So we've got to be careful. We have to be careful in all of this. That the way that we serve, that it's not a back door to get something that we're not doing this servant leadership man's way so that we can end up advancing or we can end up getting something out of it, right? Because we can serve for the wrong reasons. We all know people like this. You guys know the people who go on missions trips and they love going on missions trips, but they really go on missions trips because it makes them feel better about themselves because they can go to these third world countries and look down on everybody and say, your, your savior is here. No, not Jesus, that's silly. It's me, I'm your savior. I'm the one who has these supplies that you need. 
right? It's scary, but it's true. People get this Messiah complex when they go on these missions trips. Same thing. How many of you know people who serve because it looks really good on a resume? Right? Oh yeah, do, do all these. Go, go serve at the food kitchen because then you can put it on your resume and it looks... Guys, if that's why you're serving, that is a poor motivation. That's man's motivation. It's not the right reason. And here's my favorite. We serve because it gets us a bigger mansion in heaven. You've ever heard that one? We serve because it gets us another jewel in the crown. Poor motivation. And both of those teachings, I might add, are based on faulty doctrine. Both are based on false translations in Scripture. I actually don't know where they get the jewels in the crown thing. That's, that's not biblical, period. So that's just made up. But the mansions thing, that's a, that's a bad translation in the old King James Version. Jesus says, in my house there are many mansions. That's not what it says. The actual translation is there are many dwelling places. But we translated that into mansions because, well, that's a good way to motivate people to give, right? So you guys tithe today because it gets you a bigger mansion, right? No, tithe today because we need a new TV, clearly. And so, <laughs> that was a plug. How'd you like that one? But we've got to be careful because it's crazy to think, but we can be following Jesus our entire lives and we can still serve for the wrong reasons. And you don't have to take my word for it because in our scripture reading today, we read this in John 13, starting in verse 6. So Jesus came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Now what's going on here? This is one of my favorite things about Peter. Peter tends to get a little dramatic sometimes. Any of you like that? Right? Jesus comes to him and says, Peter, I've just washed everybody's feet and nobody said boo about it. Comes to wash Peter's feet. Never, Lord, shall you wash my feet. I would never allow the Lord of my life to wash my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, come on, man. If I don't do this, then you have no part with me. Then Jesus, wash not only my feet, but my hands and my head as well. You picking up on the drama there, right? Peter gets this way, Lord, even if all abandon you, I will never abandon, right? He gets this kind of like drama king like vibe in Peter. But what's he doing? What do we do when we get this drama king or queen thing, right? It's for attention, right? What's Peter pulling here? Jesus, I'm the best disciple. Hey, Jesus, remember when you said I was the rock? Yeah, remember that? Hey, Jesus, Jesus, remember right? Disciple of Jesus. How many times do you spend in prayer reminding Jesus how great you are, right? We have this tendency, don't we? We're following Jesus, but it's all about power and position, and Peter's not the only one. Mark 9, verses 33 to 35 says, they all came to Capernaum, 
And when he, Jesus, was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last and a servant of all. And then in the very next chapter, Mark 10, verse 35, it tells us that James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You guys ever have friends that do that? Right? How much do you love me? Yeah, we're moving on Saturday. Can, can you come and help us with your trip? Right? They, always, they don't tell you what they need right away. It's always, hey, what are you doing on Saturday? Right? That's what they're doing. Jesus, grant us whatever we ask of you. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? They said, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in glory. What are they asking for? Clearly, they weren't paying attention during the first sermon, right? Because he just got done saying, whoever wants to be first in the kingdom has to be last, right? And this isn't the first time. Every single gospel account, we are told, right? What kind of religion does this? A true religion, that's what kind. But Christianity is the only religion that continues to say our founding fathers, these 12 disciples who are teaching you all of these things, were complete buffoons. Because if you go through the gospel, you read over and over and over again. Who does that, right? What kind of organization says, hey guys, the people who are carrying this message, they're complete idiots. But over and over again in the gospels, we get this picture of the disciples that they are just completely clueless. Because Jesus teaches, if you want to be first, you have to be last. And in the very next chapter, two of Jesus' main men say, hey Jesus, when we get to heaven, can you like put us in the seats of power, you know? Were you sleeping? Did you miss it entirely? Over and over again. And we could ask ourselves the same thing right? Jeremy? Because I read over and over again in the red letters that if I want to be first in the kingdom of heaven, I must become a leader of all, false, a servant of all. And yet as a Christian, I can still get this screwed up idea that I can lead people from an ivory tower and they'll all follow me in this church, and it'll be grand. That's not what the gospel teaches. Because power and position and prestige are man's motivation, not God's. Over and over again, Jesus teaches. Fact of the matter is that there is no such thing as a promotion in the kingdom of God. There are no promotions. This is very unpopular. In fact, it's, come, it's caused some to develop these theologies and ideas that there are multiple levels of heaven, right? And if you, if you do good, you get to go up to the next level of, of heaven and all this stuff. I don't buy it, y'all. I do not buy it. Because when I read scripture, what I see over and over again is there is no promotion. You already received the best promotion you're ever gonna get. You are a child of the living God not because of anything you did, 
but because of everything that Jesus did. He bought you with his blood, with his very life. You have been purchased, and you are God's son and daughter. It doesn't get any better than that. So why are we seeking after these promotions with God? We try to approach God's kingdom man's way. And we assume that it's a business, right? God's kingdom's got to be a business. So if I do more good deeds here on this earth, I'm going to get more promotions on my way up. But that's an awful motivation. You're serving God for cheap trinkets when you should be serving him for him, right? For God himself. How many, we've, we've said that before, right? There's that great quote by John Owen. It says, my goal is God himself at any cost, dear Lord, and by any road. We have got to stop pretending that the kingdom of God is about mansions, that the kingdom of God is about jewels and crowns and endless ice cream bars. How many of you heard, have heard that one preached at funerals, right? Cindy's up there enjoying the endless ice cream bar up in heaven. Stop. It, I, I promise if anyone ever preaches that at my funeral, I will haunt them for the rest of my, I don't know, as long as God lets me. But, but y- listen, y'all, I, I, I get it. I mean, I understand it. I, I understand what, what we're doing and what the pastor's doing here and all that stuff, but, but there comes a point where we continue to undercut God's glory. Because God's not enough, heaven's got to have an endless ice cream bar. Right? But, but do we see how silly this is? And, and as, as we get further away, the disciples in the very beginning and the, and the people in the book of Acts, they understood something. They saw Jesus, and they knew that he was enough. And I feel like as we fall farther and farther from this, we've lost sight of the fact that God is enough. And so we make heaven about all of these other things. When in all actuality, when I get to heaven, I do, I, I've told, th- this is harsh, but I've told Jana, I'm not waiting for you. You know, lots of times, Jeremy's going to be up there waiting for you. and uh, I'm not waiting. I'm going to be at the feet of Jesus, and you are going to have to peel my face away from him. But guys, that's what heaven is. And we sit here and we're like, oh, that's harsh. That's because you don't get it. And I'm sorry if that's a, oh, that's, that's too harsh. That's the truth. We should be so enamored with Jesus that that's how we approach this. When I get to heaven, that's what I want. I don't want a mansion. I want a little maybe mat. I don't even care if there's a mat, but I want to be at the feet of Jesus, and I don't want to leave. That's what I want heaven to be. And that's what heaven is. And I think if we expect anything else, We've missed the true motivation. Because fact of the matter is, God's motivation is so much different than man's motivation. Jesus came to this earth, and guess what, y'all? It wasn't for a promotion, right? I mean, none of us are going to argue that, right? Jesus gave up everything. 
gave up power, gave up prestige, gave up everything. He gave it up. And he came to this earth. It wasn't a power grab. It wasn't anything like that. But Jesus came to this earth to eliminate hierarchy. He came to this earth to tear down the ivory tower and to create perfect unity between us and God. From our scripture passage today, Jesus says, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I do, or I'm sorry, do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. We are called to be exactly like Jesus. And he has given us the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to be exactly like Jesus. When you walk in the Spirit, he will not lead you into anything that contradicts Jesus. We know this, right? So why don't we do it all the time? But we are called to be exactly like Jesus. Jesus came and embraced the servant's towel. Jesus came and laid down every ivory tower, every scepter, every crown. He gave it all up so that he could come and serve. So what are we supposed to do? serve right but why did jesus serve what was jesus's motivation in serving and we get a really unique insight into this comes a few chapters later in john 17 john's walking with his disciples to the garden of gethsemane where he's about to be betrayed and jesus offers up what's called the high priestly prayer and it's such a cool snapshot i would encourage you to go read the whole thing because it really, I mean, this is, this is Jesus heading to the cross. Jesus knows what's happening here. And Jesus offers a prayer to his Father. And it gives us this, this inside look into what's going on in Jesus' heart. And it is incredible to me. In the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays. He prays for, for what's about to happen. He prays for his current disciples. But then he also prays for the disciples to come. He prays for you and me. And isn't that the most humbling thing that you have ever heard? That on his way to be crucified, Jesus took time to pray for you. To pray that you would be strengthened. To pray that you would have courage. To pray that you would follow him. That's an incredible Savior. But this is, this is just part of that prayer. Again, I would encourage you to, to look at it. It's in John 17. I'd encourage you to read the whole thing because it is, it is very powerful. But this is one specific thing that he prays. He says, The glory, this is him praying to God, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, to his disciples, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity. See, Jesus probably said that in Hebrew, so it wouldn't have rhymed as good as it does there. It's, it's a really good rhyme. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. 
Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Why did Jesus come? To make us one. Was it to get, so that you could elevate yourself ahead? So that I can, you know, I'm the lead pastor. Look at me, I'm better than all of you. False, right? But in church after church after church in America, not just America, in other countries too, right? That's the mentality we get. Well, these, the people who are up on stage, they're like the upper echelon of Christians. And then there's like the normal people. And then there's the people who don't go to church. False. All of it, false. Because Jesus Christ came to make us one. To completely unite us. Like I said earlier, you are God's child. There is no promotion after that. That's as high as it gets, right? If we truly understood the gospel, we would get that. We would understand that that's enough, right? It's like the story of the prodigal son, right? Just being a child of the king is enough. When you are a child of the king, he sees to it that you have everything you need. But ch the ch child of the king, your kids, they don't sit there and wonder, right? What child do you know? Jana's holding Gideon right now. Gideon's not sitting there thinking, boy, I wonder if my mom's going to feed me today. I wonder if I'm going to be taken care of. I wonder, oh man, gosh, am I going to have pajamas to wear tonight? Kids don't think about that, right? Because the king takes care of his children. Your father takes care of you. There is no greater promotion than that. Jesus didn't come to make us equal with each other, right? That's what the world wants today, right? We want equality, but we want that to mean that everybody's on the same playing field. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus came to elevate all of us to his glorious standard. He came to bring all of us up. And we can see this so clearly in the gospel if we are paying attention. There's a parable that Jesus teaches, and I actually think that it proves to us how much we are not paying attention to this gospel. Because we read this in our, in our Western culture, in our capitalist society, the American dream. We read this parable, and it's like, ooh, like sandpaper on skin. We hate it. You ever just rubbed a cheese grater against your elbow for a while? That's what this parable is for us. This is what I think is the least popular parable of Jesus in our culture today. Jesus said, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. 
When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them out into the vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Anybody want to admit that they really don't like that? And I've heard this a lot. You're telling me, and this is why we create the theology of echelons of heaven, right? The better you are on this earth, the longer you serve Jesus, the closer you can get. I don't, I don't buy it. I just don't buy it, especially not after reading this parable. Because we read this and we think, so somebody who gives their heart to the Lord on their deathbed, they get the exact same thing as me. I've been serving Jesus. I've walked through crap in ministry. I've been cussed at, spit at, thrown out, all of this stuff, right? You're telling me that the Apostle Paul, who gets whipped and beaten, all these things, he gets the exact same thing as that thief on the cross who with his last breath says, Jesus, forgive me. <gasps> That's the only good thing that fool ever does. And he gets the exact same thing as everybody else. My friends... The reason you ask the question is because you have missed the gospel entirely and because your motivation is off. I'm sorry if that hurts you. But so many times, and it's hard not to fall back into, right? Because even if we convince ourselves of these things, it's easy to fall back into, into scorekeeping. Because that's how the world works. But God's kingdom is not the work. We object to this because our true colors show. I'm following Jesus because I want a prize. I'm following Jesus because I want a mansion. I'm following Jesus because I want a crown. I want a share of the glory. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But none of that is God's motivation. You were God's motivation. Jesus Christ endured the cross because of you. You were his motivation. 
Why do we find it so hard to make him ours? And ultimately, that must be our motivation to serve. And this, again, is where traditional servant leadership misses it. Because we serve so that we can have a successful church. We serve so that we can look good. We serve so we can be a successful leader or have a successful culture. But those are all wrong reasons. Now look, they're great side effects, right? If you become a servant leader, will this be a fantastic church? Absolutely it will. Do you know why? Because it's his principle and his principles work. If you become a servant leader, will your business take off? Absolutely it will. But that can't be your motivation. The gospel has to be your motivation. Some of you have been here long enough. You should know this by now. If you don't, right? What is our motivation? What does the gospel say our motivation is? It's gospel motivation. I'll let you cheat. You can open your Bible or look it up. 1 John 4.19. And while you're looking it up, if you need to, I'll show you what Jesus' motivation was. John 13. 3 through 4, it started off our scripture passage for today. Said Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. What enabled Jesus to give up his heavenly royalty and embrace the life? of a servant. Again, it was not one moment, right? This was not the only moment Jesus served when he picked up this towel. This is a great picture of Jesus serving, but it's not the only moment. From the very beginning, Jesus served. And what mo motivated him to do that? Jesus, more than anyone else, knew who he was. And Jesus knew whose he was. He knew without a shadow of a doubt that he was one with God, that his father loved him, that his father adored him, that his father was proud of him. I love this when, when they talk about Jesus' baptism, right? When Jesus is being baptized, while Jesus is being baptized, the voice of God calls out from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't, we don't understand, we don't wrestle with the gospel-ness of that proclamation. Jesus hadn't performed a single miracle yet. Jesus hadn't taken a single step of obedience. He hadn't endured the cross. Nothing was done yet, right? But God still proclaimed this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Ladies and gentlemen, God is proclaiming the same exact thing over you. The second you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is not a step that has to happen after that for him to say it. 
you know, we get hung up on this, I just want to get to heaven here. Well done, good and faithful servant, right? We get hung up on that. God already said it. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, God says, this is my child in whom I am well pleased. What's our motivation, y'all? What's 1 John 4.19 say? We love because he first loved us. We serve because he first loved us. Fill in the blank. Whatever it is, everything we do in this life is because he first loved us. This is the gospel. We served because God has welcomed us with open arms. What kind of king lays down his royal scepter in exchange for a life of serving others? especially serving those who would end up crucifying him, right? Only Jesus. I think our biggest, biggest problem that we face today as Christians is that we are not enamored nearly enough with this fact that the God of the universe loved you so much that he literally gave up everything for you. Do we wrestle with that enough? Do we feel that weight every day enough? We have lots of idols in our culture, right? Sports figures and, you know, leaders and all this stuff, right? And, and when someone you deeply respect pays you a compliment, what happens? You're over the moon, right? It's, it's the greatest thing in the world. This is the God of the entire universe. The Lord of all creation who literally spoke and all of this came into existence. The universe is still expanding at the power of his voice. And he has set his affection on you. He has given up everything to be with you forever. Yet we choose to obsess over someone who said something bad about us behind our back. Right? We choose to obsess about the worldly promotion we didn't get or the person who told us that we're unqualified or not good enough. Right? Now look, I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. It hurts. You don't have to pretend it doesn't. But we can put it in perspective. Because while the rest of the world might tell you that you're worthless, Jesus Christ showed how much worth you hold to the King of the universe. He gave everything for us, church. This should free us to give everything for Him, right? And that means that we should become the last, that we can give up being first and we can become last and serve everyone else, whether they believe or not. We can serve everyone because we have the ultimate prize, and that's a prize that no one can take from us. Amen? Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Gospel House podcast. We pray that you are pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button. Leave us a rating and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house connect, fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.